Hello and welcome to another edition of ITC Entertain the World podcast with myself, Jazz Wiseman. And as always, I'm joined by remote connection with the wonders of the internet, socially distanced, Rodney Marshall out in Suffolk. Hi, Rodney. Hi, Jazz. And up in Wolverhampton, Al Smudge. Hi, Smudge. Hi, Jazz. It's lovely to be chatting again with you guys, as always. And in this episode, we're talking about Hammer House of Horror, which for me is probably the last great ITC film series. There were a couple of series afterwards in terms of Shillingsbury Tales and Seagull Island, but I think this is where ITC went out with a real big bang. Hammer was a name that uh, is probably associated mostly with 50s and 60s horror films. People will know Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee from Dracula and Frankenstein and all these films. How Hammer got into TV is quite an interesting story. They had tried before and one of their more popular shows, I suppose, or more well-known TV shows was Journey into the Unknown. But Hammer had hit on sort of hard times, really, when this series came to fruition. So, Smudge, I know you know a little bit more about this than me, so perhaps you could expand on that, please. In spring, summer of 1979, the grandson of the, the company's founder, Michael Carreras, sadly lost control of the company. Their last big screen movie was The Lady Vanishes with Elliot Gould and Sybil Shepherd, which was a reasonable movie. It's not a bad film, but it just didn't take at the box office. So unfortunately, the creditors who owned so much of Hammer started circling. And a company called Pension Fund Securities, which was acting on behalf of ICI, which was a big creditor to Hammer. And we should uh, say that's the chemical company, ICI. Yeah, Lots of us will remember that company. Yeah, that, That's right, the chemical company, ICI. They started circling and, and trying to realise their money back to secure their pension fund. Roy Skeggs had been a producer at Hammer. He started out as an accountant way back when with them. His cohort, Brian Lawrence, was a production executive for many, many years at Hammer. And between the two of them, with their finance heads on, they went to the pension fund securities and said, look, guys, you leave us as we are, and we can trade out of this. We can stay in this sector. We can stay in the media and the film and television sector. So basically, pension fund securities said yes, and to actually make this series, they licensed the name Hammer. They weren't actually Hammer. So effectively, the Hammer tag was being borrowed from ICI. There's not a lot about this in Lou Grade biographies or autobiography. It isn't even mentioned, to be perfectly frank. There are a couple of versions of how this happened. One was that Roy Skeggs met Lou Grade on a plane. But the more sort of credible version is that there was a big lunch. There was a chance meeting with Lou Grade, and so they called together a big lunch, and it was quite a thing. It was the ITC top table. You had Lou Grade himself as the sort of managing director and chairman of ACC, the ITC ATV holding company. 
Jack Gill, who was the chair, then the chairman of ATV Television, and who was, I think, um, Chips Productions, which you see as a co-credit on here, and Charles Denton, who was the program controller at ATV. So you've essentially got the big hitters for the company saying yes to the financing. The financing seems to have come as part of a package for the Rising Damp movie and the Georgia Mildred sitcom movie and this series. The only figure I can find quotable is two million pounds. Hammer House of Horror is an interesting choice for Lou, because as you'll know, when we discussed this on the Tamarind Seed podcast last time, he was very reluctant for anything of his filmmaking to get an X certificate. So certainly you've got Hammer House of Horror on the threshold with, as we know, blood, bad language, nudity, so I suspect Lou just took it as part of a deal. He, he didn't even think about it or comment on it. It was, it was just a, a monetary decision. That thing you say about the big lunch, that's the only research that I could find that basically that he had a big lunch with the guys that you mentioned, and it was basically agreed there and then. And like you say, Rising Damp and Georgia Mildred came into it and sort of away we went. And then Rising Damp, the film was made first, and that was basically a rehash of the sort of better scenes of the TV series into a film. So, yeah, there's a little bit of background history, I should say, there for you about how this series came around. wanted to talk about what would we have expected from a horror television series in 1980. We've got to go back to 1980 which was when this series was made and you'd mentioned there about blood and gore and nudity and bad language and obviously in 1980 things were beginning to change a little bit with television but still, you know, it was quite conservative in its approach. We still had Mary Whitehouse complaining about literally every single thing that was ever made. Yeah. So I wondered what you two felt about that question, really. What would we have expected from a horror show in 1980? I mean, just personally, I mean, what I really remember about it was the house that bled to death. As like kids, we were about 13, I think, when that was on. And we all saw it and we were all talking about it in the playground the next day. Some of the other episodes I don't remember anyone talking about. Well, I think probably for me, a lot of those iconic images from certain episodes remain etched on the brain. So mm -hmm. you've mentioned, obviously, the house that bled to death. And, and in particular, I imagine you're thinking of that scene at a children's party. Mm. I'd also say, you know, in the Two Faces episodes as well, that opening with the family sort of singing a jolly song and suddenly you've got a guy in a sou'wester and the long nail. And I think images like that st stuck. I mean, I must admit, re-watching them, I didn't notice anything in the way of bad language in particular. I, there wasn't anything particularly scandalous. This is post-Sweeney. So in terms of things like violence, I would have thought it would have, personally, it would have been the sexual side that would have been the only, perhaps, free sort of shock mm -hmm. for any viewers. I mean, you know, there's plenty of bare breasts in a few of the episodes. Would that have been the area that would have been most shocking for people? 
I think you've got to come to it in sort of context, really, because what, what you're looking at in the 70s is you're looking at the annual ghost story for Christmas, Lawrence Gordon Clark, not too gory, basically. You've got previously in the, the late 60s, you've got Mystery and Imagination, which did things like Dracula with Denham Elliott, which was a brilliant Dracula, but again, fairly straightforward, played as a drama, really. Supernatural was the BBC series, possibly closest to the timing of this. Again, the Ghost Story Club, all implied, really, so not such great overt horror. And finally, really on the doorstep of this was the BBC Dracula in 1977, which was a fine production, uh, had some bits and pieces, but uh, nothing compared to this. You look at this, this is Hammer coming to television the way it came to film. I mean, it came to film 1957, Curse of Frankenstein, but all the classic universal monsters behind you. And then suddenly Hammer bursts onto the screen in colour with lots of blood. And I think this is what they did to television when they sort of popped up in 1980. We had obviously already had Thriller from ITC, you know, 73 to 76. Now, mm -hmm. obviously that, that wasn't necessarily, a lot of the episodes would not come under the category of horror. Some of them would. Some of them certainly came under the category of supernatural. Some of them contain quite a lot of violence and there's certainly quite a lot of psychological fear in the thriller series. Mm. So in a yeah. sense, I do think there is connective tissue between, you know, Brian Clemens's thriller and this. I wouldn't disagree, but it's, it's just literally in terms of strength. As you say, it's post-Sweeney. But we get a few curse words in there. In I mean, I'm thinking of particularly in the... Uh, run back to the ending of Charlie Boy, where Lee Lawson's bringing the statue home and, and they have a sort of supernatural tussle and he starts talking to it and he's not very complimentary to it. Mainly the thing is there was so much of, of the gore in there for the time. I still think it was pretty strong. I mean, for me, I think the ones that work best are the ones with the less gore, to be honest, mm -hmm. but we'll come to those. We should also examine as well the themes of the stories we've mentioned their supernatural and psychological drama and storylines some of them were what i would call more traditional kind of what we would expect from hammer like in in the cinema like guardian of the abyss for example for me is mm -hmm. kind of like hammer from the cinema saying this is a story and we're putting it onto tv whereas something like 13th reunion is almost played out like a, a drama. There's not lots of gore and blood as such mm. in that. Yeah, it comes out as a sort of detective drama, really, doesn't it? She, yes. The pursuing reporter and whatever. Rodney will help me with this, I know, because he said that there are some with sort of supernatural and psychological crossovers. It, it's a fundamental split. There's about six and seven between supernatural and, and psychological, as far as I, I can remember from looking at them in detail at the moment. Dennis Michael, in his book, The History of Horrors, said, as shooting went on, they were told to tone down the nudity and bring up the gore at the requirements of the American networks. And if you look at it, it, it does happen. I mean, it, I suppose to a certain extent, it, it depends. What do we expect from horror? I mean, at the very beginning of watching them, I sort of uh, went online and had a look for a few different sort of definitions. And most of them seem to come out that, you know, horror is intended to frighten, scare, disturb or disgust. Mm -hmm. Now, that's quite open and clearly, you know, it crosses over with loads of other different genres as well. So 
I do think most of this anthology series does fit into that. There are mm -hmm. scary, disturbing things. They're just of quite a wide range of different types of story, aren't they? Believe it or not, there is some subtlety in there, isn't there? There's some, some gloriously dark humour in there as well. Things like Children of the Full Moon. There's purely psychological stuff. There's implicit horror. There's explicit horror. It delivers in a variety of forms. And for the most part, it delivers well. I mean, these things are subjective. Personally, I want characters who are worth caring about. And I don't think it's coincidence that the episodes that I'm most fond of, having rewatched them twice each, are the ones where we invest in the characters. But if there are characters you don't care about, do you start rooting for the villain? <laughs> yes. And I, I know I did in one particular episode. Yeah, we know the episode you're talking about, and I think we all feel the same. One of the joys, and it's outside the fact that it's horror, is the fact that we have got this sort of wonderful time traveling back to sort of metro land to suburban south of England in 1980. And it's such a different world, you know, mm. whether it's things like smoking in the pubs or those sort of creaky village antique shops. I think that's sort of one of the joys as well. It does capture that sort of slower pace of life as was back then. And that sort of familiarity, obviously, because we're, we're looking at it from a perspective that we, we watched it as teenagers and whatever, familiarity of the surroundings, the cars, etc. the usual sort of thing you get when we're watching this stuff. This is almost immediately after things like Survivors. Blake Seven is going on. We'll even see some of the Blake Seven mm. actors turn up. Mm -hmm. Now, those are pretty dark, dystopian stories. And actually, they're both stories that contain, I would argue, occasionally in the episodes, elements of horror. I think there's sort of connective tissue there as well with Hammer House of Horror in that often quite strange things disturb us. Seedy pet shop owners, you know, there's no reason why that should disturb us, but it probably does. It's that wonderful sort of juxtaposition of mundanity against what you know or what you anticipate is going to be delivered within the episode. Just to give a further bit of context, I mean, obviously, Roy Skeggs and Brian Lawrence were money men, financiers, which is why you get the third person in the mix as a producer, David Reed. Now, David Reed would have been the hand on the tiller for ITC stroke ATV. 
Hammer had toyed with the idea of an anthology television series or video series, really, twice before in this format, in 1973 and 1976, and way, way back in the 50s, they'd had a one-hit wonder, or rather a failure, really, when they tied up with Columbia in America to make Tales of Frankenstein. Once they got their agreements, their funding for this, they, as non-production staff, put out an industry-wide trawl for stories, outlines, script ideas. Anthony Reed, I think, came in in April 1980 as the script editor, but he said his Hammer House of Horror experience was one of the most enjoyable things of his career. And he did say that the outlines that everybody had provided were a load of rubbish, but I would sort of dispute that when you look at the, the number and variety of writers that we have got on the series. And we have some cracking writers on this show. I particularly like Jeremy Burnham, uh, who sadly passed away very recently. I mean, I've always liked his writing, whether it be The Avengers or Children of the Stones, but I think in this, he comes in with an absolute classic episode. I think Jeremy Burnham has an ability to come in and offer something a little bit left field. Um, mm -hmm. He certainly re-energised Tara King when the Avengers looked very sad and tired and formulaic. He offered something exciting here as well. The golden rose of this series for me in writing goes to Ranald Graham for Two Faces of Evil. Yeah. Wonderful story. You've got Francis Megahee providing a script. He did a joint one, didn't he, with Bernie Cooper, Carpathian Eagle. Mm -hmm. That was redemption for Growing Pains. He also did Charlie Boy as well. And Silent Scream, one of the sort of fan classics of the series, was actually written by Francis Essex, who was a production executive at ATV ITV. Things were coming in thick and fast. You had Gerald Savory wrote one of the scripts who also adapted that brilliant 1977 BBC Dracula. I think one of the fascinating things with the scripts is that this really is an anthology series where some of the episodes are what I would call one-watch wonders. You can enjoy them once, but actually you gain nothing. In fact, sometimes they're quite irritating to rewatch. Mm -hmm. Others, such as Jeremy Burnham's one, each time I've watched it, and I've watched it three times, I've enjoyed it more and I've seen more and realised how much depth there is. And, and I think there, is, there yeah. is a real contrast between them. Yeah, it, it took me years to get into that one. I mean, when I first mm. watched it, I thought, what an episode. I mean, I was a teenager, obviously. I thought, what a dull episode. I'm the same with 13th Reunion when I, you know, I was like you, I saw it when I was at school and probably at the time I think I said to you, why am I interested in a health farm kind of thing? You know, I think probably I was a bit too young to really get it. And I enjoyed it when I, was, I watched the whole series about 20 years ago when the DVDs came out and I enjoyed it back then. But having watched mm -hmm. it like you guys again, three times, I think it's it's just so, so, so brilliantly scripted and so much to it and so many layers to it. I think it's an absolute masterpiece, to be honest. It was too subtle for us as teenagers. As Rodney said, the yeah. most memorable scene of the entire series is the kids' party in the house that bled to death. It's the one everybody remembers. I think it's the ultimate point of reference for most casual viewers of the series. And at the other end, as I say, with 13th Reunion, it's, it's the depth of characters. Beautiful scene when they're having dinner. And you immediately invest in those two characters. You care about them. They're two lost souls having a wonderful conversation. He's obviously at a very low point in his life. And despite the fact this is horror, which isn't necessarily a genre where you expect that sort of character depth, 
Jeremy Burnham delivers that in his script, doesn't he? The titles and music for this were quite short. I mean, unlike lots of other ITC shows, and because this is an anthology series, you don't have that same lead star every week and two or three sidekicks. So the theme, I think, is wonderfully composed because it is you only need to hear it once and it's an earworm. And I think the titles that accompany it are very, very clever because although they're basically the same every week, the only mm -hmm. thing that really difference is the name of the episode and obviously the people in it. It's got that hook that tells you this is the same anthology as you watched last week. I think that they were very clever in that personally. And I love the way it was directed. And when you're right at the end, you see someone at the window that's kind of looking out over the whole thing. Well, I think yeah. you, you've got three anthology series all within four years, which are all iconic in terms of the titles and theme tunes. So you've got Ron Grainer's Tales of the Unexpected, Laurie Johnson's with Thriller, which again is a very, very short start, probably even shorter than Hammer House of Horror. And obviously uh, Webb here with Hammer House of Horror. And, and I think in all three cases, as you say, they are earworms. You hear them once and, and immediately you're time traveling back to those episodes. And that is so important, as you said, Jazz, because we haven't got a Roger Moore turning up every week or a Patrick McGowan or whoever. Mm -hmm. So that there's got to be something which sort of binds it all together. I'm going to confess to disappointment on this point, because for years and years I remembered it. It was the earworm. It was spooky. But this is the downside of technology. I am so disappointed after watching this now for the last couple of weeks, avidly, to realise the little man at the window in a very mundane thing, he blows the candles out. <laughs> my, to, to my teenage self on a smaller black and white screen, he just swept past and it was all darkness. And it, you actually see him bend down and blow the candles out. That's broken it from me. <laughs> <laughs> that is Blu-ray for you, isn't it? The main crux, I think, of this podcast, really, we should talk about, for me, is the strong episodes, the best episodes, whatever you want to say. And I think, actually, this series delivers really well in terms of, I think there are 10, I would say, good and above good stories. Mm -hmm. I think, for me, there are only three really bad clunkers. I think the rest definitely hit the mark where you think, yeah, that's a good episode, like Rodney says, it might be a one-watch one, but there are some here that I'd watch them over and over again. Mm -hmm. And my top three here, in order, I would say are 13th Reunion, Two Faces of Evil, and Charlie Boy. And I think, my God, when I watch those three episodes, I think this is real quality. This isn't done on the cheap. This is investing great amount of time and skill in various aspects of this for example two faces of evil is by far the best directed i think in terms of beautifully shot lots of location footage there's some wonderful direction in this and whereas 13th reunion might not have the same sort of directorial feel but it's got that storyline that just keeps drawing you in it's like compulsive watching that story when i watched it this time I immediately thought, I'm going to watch that again. That was so blooming good. I probably ended up watching it about five times. I think it's more disturbing than Two Faces mm. because it is psychological horror. 
because we're watching something that could happen. Whereas obviously Two Faces is a brilliantly made zombie movie. But with 13th Reunion, as I say, I mean, Warren Clark, how long is he in, the, in that film for? Five, six minutes, not much more. And yet mm-hmm. in that time, we actually really care about him. You know, when he's sitting there having dinner and he's saying, well, even if you're not bored, I'm imagining that you're bored. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Sakai, really, it's such a low point. There is something truly revolting about that episode in terms of the subject matter that mm-hmm. I just continually fascinates me. I would have the same three as you. Uh, I must admit, I would throw in as a fourth one, Carpathian Eagle. Because yeah. I just think Anthony Valentine's performance is probably the performance of the whole anthology series. I think as a character and in terms of his sort of acting in it, mm. even though I don't think necessarily the story is as interesting, I do mm. think uh, that's outstanding. Well, I will agree with you. Uh, that is my fourth in the list. So I'm happy to give you a plus point there or a thumbs okay. up, whatever. I think we're sort of coming on from the same angle, but I would put two faces at the top of my tree because it is a small film. There is some actual direction. There is some real action. There's camera movement. There's all sorts of things going on in that. A lot of the others are quite dialogue-driven, quite limited directorially. But what I love about 13th Reunion is that you've got the strange psychological stuff. You've got that brilliantly directed breakdown sequence when... Warren Clark's character is being chased by the vehicles mm. in the dark. But then, pardon the expression, cut back to the chase and you come to the dinner party. There's that wonderful veneer of civilization. Uh, and that's what makes it for me, because you know what's going on underneath. Norman Bird and George Innes, they're hardly in, in the episode as such, but they are so brilliant. And every scene they sort of have, they steal it. I particularly love the one where they can negotiate the increase in the price for the dead body. That is so funny. Yeah. From the moment you see that shadow on the door at the start, when they're opening the door, you couldn't get better casting for those two parts than those two guys. Absolutely sublime. They're sort of lugubrious, laconic, matter of mm. fact. They're ultimately the biggest cog in the machine. I mean, it's well casted all round, isn't it? Because Dinah Sheridan is very good as the sort of the women's page editor. Mm-hmm. And then even like James Cosmo, it's not a huge part, but, but he's wonderfully bullish as this sort of, I mean, that scene shocks you the first time when he's shouting at this woman on the sort of little mm. stage, yeah. you stupid cow. No wonder your husband doesn't want to be at home and all of this. I think all round, there's really good casting in that episode. But going back to Two Faces, again, that feels quite like an old-fashioned sort of hammer story to me. You know, like I said about Guardian and Abyss earlier, like you say, it's a bit of a zombie movie. and But it's done with flair. It, re- it really is. The fluidity mm. of Alan Gibson's camera. It's notable the way he moves it. The shot we talked about earlier in the week, Jazz, where who would think of taking a telephone call from outside of the cottage? That's yeah. interesting enough. But then when she runs upstairs, the camera follows her from the outside of the cottage and goes upstairs with her. You've got a beautiful cut to her coming upstairs. There's an absolutely remarkable performance from Gary Raymond because he's got all of this to do 
without saying a word and things like the frustration mm. of the kettle scene where he's trying to plug in the kettle yeah. that scene towards the end with the car that's broad daylight that is still scary really good locations as well i mean when you first go into the hospital and it's almost dazzlingly white you almost say you need sunglasses for watching that mm -hmm. on the blu-ray version mm, and then yep. that wonderful sort of chocolate box thatched cottage and their little yeah, boy's excited going round, finding always oh, he's got his little room tucked away on the ground floor and everything wonderful locations i mean i would ask I mean, and obviously we can't talk about that as an episode in terms of realism but where did the real dad go because he's, he's not the one in the morgue or the one in the cottage, is he? You mentioned a scene a little bit earlier there that I was going to like agree with you with. Actually, one of the most disturbing scenes is the scene where he's trying to plug the kettle in. He just can't do it. And you know that, you know, that if, if that was the normal dad, he'd be like mm -hmm. straight in, power on, away you go. That's the sort of the unhingedness of it that I really yeah. love. It's the sun in the haystack I find quite difficult to watch because that's the moment when you know there's no, going to be no way out. Mm -hmm. And after all, the mother has sent the son up to the farm to get help mm -hmm. and she's hugging this zombie replacement yeah. and sees her dead son in the haystack. I normally cringe with children in a lot of ITC shows. It, it, it's not a good combination, I don't think, mm -hmm. TV drama and kids. But actually, he's quite good in this episode. And that is an episode which you would think wouldn't work watching a second time, but it does, doesn't it? Because, you know, it is a story that relies on twists and turns. And yet, because it's so beautifully made, you enjoy it just as much, if not more, on a second or third watching, which I yeah. think is quite remarkable for that type of storyline. Yeah, I so think on third watch, I was still rooting for her to get away. What do you think of the one watchers then? Because you mentioned earlier there's a few episodes that you think are a one watch only. The top one for me is The House That Bled to Death because we are cheated. I mean, we're cheated in a couple in the sense that in The House That Bled to Death, we think we're watching a supernatural horror. And at the last minute, we're told actually this is psychological. It's all been arranged by these two people. And then obviously the visitor from the grave, it's the opposite. And I just think with a house that bled to death, I just felt uh, as a viewer at the end, I feel cheated because I really thought we were watching supernatural things going on in the house and it doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. There are things that go on that couldn't go on. I mean, maybe he could have been upstairs pumping red water into the pipes, mm -hmm. but there's no way he was turning the gas controls on the fire round and shutting doors that couldn't be opened again and it's the old hammer stroke horror thing. You've, you've really got to suspend disbelief for that 50 minutes or whatever. But I think that one can stand a second watch, but only by dint of you can examine the conspiracy. The main reason we all watch it is because we so remember it when we were kids, like Jazz said, we talked about it in the playground. It was the big episode of the series. But I think that's interesting that the, the ones that stayed in our memory from childhood are not now the ones that we're all agreeing are probably the best ones. Mm -hmm. So as, as adults, are we enjoying things that probably just went over our heads as kids? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah we, definitely, under... because, I mean, I think when we were 13 or whatever, we were impressionable. And mm -hmm. maybe something like House That Bled to Death, you know, I don't know how many horror, inverted comma, films I'd actually seen at that time. Okay, now you watch it and it's kind of laughable in a way. 
when did Alien come out? 1979. Mm-hmm. And that would have frightened the pants off me at that time. But seeing House at Bed to Death, I think that's why it's stuck in everyone's head, because it was probably the first time that people at our age saw something maybe quite as graphic as that on a television screen. You know, when we went to the cinema, we were allowed to see things like James Bond and things like that. This is kind of bringing, like you say, some of that big screen horror onto the small screen in your own living room at home. And maybe Mm. that's why those episodes are so impressionable, because that's the sort of thing that you would expect to see at the cinema and that we hadn't experienced yet. As an adult, though, I wonder how one would have reacted in 1980, because let's face it, if you'd been to see Alien in the cinema, which is truly terrifying, whether you're 18 or 80, most of these episodes would have seemed quite gentle compared to that, wouldn't they? As Jazz has just said, it's the thing of bringing it into your living room. I mean, we'd seen Jaws, there's plenty enough gore. About three or four years before, we'd started to watch the old classic Hammer on the late night film slots. Uh, this is why the second most remembered episode is probably is the Peter Cushing, because we knew Peter Cushing from those old movies. But it is that thing about bringing it into your house, and it must have made some sort of impact, because if Royce Gakes claimed it was regularly in the top 10, I, I would put doubt on that claim. I would think it was possibly in the top 20 every week, so it was hitting an average of around 13 million viewers. One episode we haven't mentioned yet is Witching Time. That is a belter of an opener. There is some really good stuff in there. And you've got a very stark contrast. Don't leave us allowed to top and tail the series in terms of direction. There's some lovely stuff in Witching Time. I mean, something as simple as that reveal of Patricia Quinn in the stables and the way he uses the sort of limited proportions of sets or rooms that he's in. It really was a strong opener. I think that's one of the best teasers as well, because you, you start watching a teaser and you think, jeepers, this is a real cliched, handheld horror scenario, woman taking her clothes off in the bedroom. And then the reveal that it's actually the guy creating the music for it. And of course, it's his wife who will be in a real horror scenario later on in the episode. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely piece of wrong footing because you're tuning in to the first episode, Hammer House of Horror, and you've got this thing that looks like a typical Hammer gothic horror, and it's a lovely piece of wrong footing for you. I liked that story a lot. I thought it was a little daft in places, but I, mm-hmm. I can sort of forgive that. And it had a great cast. You know, Ian McCulloch was in it from Survivor's fame, and particularly Prunella G, I thought, who was really great in it. Particularly the fight scene that she has with Patricia Quinn Mm. towards the end, you know, where she suddenly realised, oh, if I throw water on you, as opposed to Mm. putting you on the fire. I thought that that whole sequence there was really well done directorially. Mm -hmm. It It was great as well. I thought John Finch was excellent. He's someone, again, who we do emotionally invest in. The first time we see him speaking to his wife on the phone, she's in bed with supposedly a mutual friend of theirs. We see him reduced to almost zombie mode, I think, when she gets back from the cottage hospital. He's playing his sort of musical instrument as if he doesn't even know he's there anymore. It is a rarity in the series in that the goodies come out alive. Charlie Boy is another one of my favourites. Watching it again only reinforced to me how much of a great storyline this is. There are some funny daft moments in it, but I think as a plot, I think it works really well. It's got good pace, some nice locations, particularly the sort of driving around scenes and a good strong cast again. 
Lee Lawson, who is a personal favourite of mine anyway, he makes a great lead. I do love the inevitability of this cycle that once the whole thing has started, there's going to be no way of stopping it. And even at the end, first time around, you're sort of hoping his character might somehow escape and yet knowing it won't. But I think this is another episode that's beautifully directed. I mean, there are some wonderful moments. The road rage scene, I actually find quite disturbing. I mean, having been in one or two situations like that, where you've come across someone mad on the road, I thought that worked very well. There's a sort of reflection of Graham and Sarah making love and you see it through the fetish's eyes. And just as she sort of reaches orgasm, it's when Scarface is being stabbed to death. That point you made straight away, this is what sort of changes things perhaps in terms of horror on television at that time. Because there you've got a direct contextual relationship between sex and death. And that, that would have been, I think, still quite strong for back then in 1980. Sex and death, though, that's Carpathian Eagle as well. So it's not the first time they did that. But that wonderful use of the black True. and white photo... First of all, we get the voices and then from the photo, it goes to like a colour flashback to the actual occasion. And those sort of little moments are beautifully done, I think. It is, as you say, one of the better directed episodes. One little bit in it, it kind of let it down a little bit, was the death of his film director friend with the crossbow. I mean, yes. that is the bit that I suddenly thought, oh, come on. Why would you stand there in particular? That was yeah. the only sort of weak point for me. To counter that, you've got the wonderfully gory death of Mark. That is a really mm. novel death. What I also love in directorial terms is how he handles Gwen's death. He does so much of it in close-up on the minutiae, putting the jewellery down, turning the mm. tap on. It's something which is ultimately going to be quite shocking, but he deals with this event in itself in a, a series of tiny, close-up, mundane sketches. It's, it's yeah. another episode, I mean, and this for me is a running light motif that connects quite a lot of the episodes. There's a lot of snobbery. I mm -hmm. mean, Mark, the reason he doesn't want that woman in the house is because he thinks that she's gone above her station and mm -hmm. that she should accept she's just a sort of servant who's going to leave. And so I think we do feel his death is sort of deserved, however sort of violent mm. it is. Mm. And that whole thing of sort of class, it does come up in a lot of the episodes. I mean, in 13th Reunion, that woman's apologising, isn't she? I'm from mm. Bolton. I shouldn't be at <laughs> this party. I find that quite interesting, but it does pop up in quite a lot of the episodes. Carpathian Eagle, I know briefly mentioned it, but I would say it's such a great story because, again, it's the baddie of the piece getting away with it. You are rooting for the villain in this one because... Well, until she kills Anthony Valentine. Of course. It's all done in the naffest possible way. There's so much cheese in there mm. that could run a fondue. The two first men who die just have to go, don't they? Yes. I mean, that awful first man who says, I never allow anybody to leave disappointed from oh, his yeah. sort of bag <laughs> parlour. The Andy Randy with, I don't know what he's got at both ends of the bed. It sort of looks like almost sort of nipple headlamps at the one end and then the gigantic feet at the other end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, it's the biggest um, set dressing disaster purposely. 
yeah, they both deserve to die. But on the first one, when he picks her up and she's in that wonderful tie-dye near skirt, they're in the middle of nowhere. Where the hell has she walked from in those high heels? <laughs> you tell me. But it, it is a brilliant episode because of the central performances. Suzanne Danielle had not long stopped dancing with the young generation dance troupe. She was a relatively inexperienced actress and she gave such a good, such good performance in this role. And Anthony Valentine, as you said, is just brilliant in his interactions with Barry Stanton. Again, you're looking for bringing things new to the television. Anthony Valentine's copper is a sort of sub-Sweeney copper, isn't he? And he's doing his sort of mockney accent. But then on the other side of that coin, he's got quite an enlightened attitude towards Tadek's homosexuality. And he actually threatens his sergeant. He says, if you come out with any more crap like that, you're up the high jump or whatever. Well, he's uh, got an open mind from the very beginning, hasn't he? When he's sitting there listening to sort of Sean Phillips's or Mrs. Hensker's story, he's even said in advance, I'm not going to be doing any talking. I'm going to be listening. That scene in particular where Anthony Valentine and Suzanne Danielle go and see the Sean Phillips character and she's telling that story. That's a hell of a long scene. And you would never get that now in kind of a drama. It feels like sort of eight or nine minutes of screen time where Mm -hmm. she's just dialogue telling you the story of her family and her relative and the cuts to... Danielle and Valentine, they're just literally sort of nodding their heads. And I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but it's so slow. But we're getting a wonderful horror story within the horror story, aren't we? And Mm -hmm. also, what a beautiful set. I'm looking around at those stuffed birds and all the vibrant Mm. colours. And Mm -hmm. there is something about Sean Phillips, I think, is very magnetic as well. Jonathan Kent, I think his name is, the the lad playing Tadek. It's a supporting role, but it's a very eye-catching supporting role and, and and you've got that dynamic with him and Anthony Valentine you, you see him as the drag act he's very good as the drag act and then they come out and you've got this sort of Sweeney scene where he takes fright and they engage in fisticuffs and the lad holds his own and then we go back into the dressing room and it's for me one of the shots of the episode that wonderful shot where he's doing the interrogation to the mirror and you've got the setting of the makeup mirror with the lights around it and all the costumes reflected. And again, it's a, it's a shot. It's a dialogue shot. They hold on that for ages, but it's a beautiful shot. Silent Scream, I know, is a, a big fan favourite. I guess that is because of Peter Cushing. I think it's a good storyline. I think it's really well made. Although, like, how the hell would he get away with having all those animals in a tiny pet shop? I don't know. Jaguars and whatever they are. But that must have been quite tricky to film that with those animals, actually. There's a trend that develops within the series of cruelty to animals. I mean, growing pains, you've got disemboweled rabbits everywhere dead cat in house that bled to death yeah it's a a graphic death and and the Mm. the evil zenith of this is in the silent scream with the puppy that is just heartbreakingly cruel poor nipper in growing pains you know he hasn't fitted into what those couple think everyone should do and so he goes as well doesn't he it's another alan gibson episode the silent scream and peter cushing gives such an assured performance there are some lovely little touches in there. 
some wonderful shot of him really close up on his face with his eyes where he sa- he says to Brian Cox about being in the concentration camp and everyone believes that he had been a captive but then he reveals to him no I, I was experimenting on on the, yes. the you know and the look in his eyes is just fantastic brilliant acting and the way Alan Gibson underlines him in those scenes but it has to be said that Elaine, Elaine Donnelly, Donnelly wife, yeah. she steals such, it, doesn't she? Such a strong character. Again, this is something we do get in this series. We do get quite a lot of good, strong roles for women. You know, I mean, you've got Elaine Donnelly here, holding her own against Peter Cushing. She's the rational one. She's the logical one. It's a bit of a letdown at the end in terms of her character for me, because she's been such a good, strong character. I mean, things like when he comes home, there's that lovely sequence pure cinema, pastoral scene, the cottage, the music, all fits together perfectly. And then we get into there and they do the exposition. We understand the scenario quickly. But the other thing that comes up about the wife's dilemma, she's been in a prison of her own. She's been stuck in that cottage. She can mm. choose between a telephone and a car and she has to have a car to get around. Well, um, she's the only one in a morality the... tale who doesn't deserve to die, isn't she? Because Brian Cox basically has been given his chance by Bluick to go straight. And as soon as he sees the safe, that's it. And his eyes light up. And obviously, Peter Cushing's character with his background deserves to go. And you sort of hope that she might escape. But this is a series which is quite relentless, isn't it? About it won't allow the good people. It's what what Roy Skeggs said about it when he was interviewed about it. He said, you know, basically, it's just like making the old hammer horrors. But this time we have the joy of allowing the baddies to win. Is this the irony with, you know, an episode we haven't mentioned, Visitor from the Grave, the ending, which probably doesn't work, is it there? Because otherwise the alternative ending was so horrendous that this group of four people have got away with forcing the only positive character in the story to kill herself. Did Mm -hmm. they almost wimp out of that and go, well, actually, that's just too dark. We can't have that. We need Mm -hmm. to have a little twist in the end. It was a very sort of retro... British B-movie approach, wasn't it? Crime can't pay. Shane, because up to that point, I really enjoyed that episode. And then the ending, I thought, was just so daft. And Gareth which, Thomas which is as smarmy, into... as I call him. Um, <laughs> God. Yeah, yeah. Give I'm me strength. Which, which point of the ending are you coming Still so an episode that's got a lot of really powerful images in it. You know, that teaser where you think this woman's going to be raped is a really, really disturbing teaser. When we find this guy in the grave with the maggots on his face, you know, it, images like that mm. are really impressively done. This is a fault of weak direction in some of these episodes, because when Catherine Lee Scott's been attacked and Simon McCorkendale comes back in the next day, she plays that traumatic incoherence so well. As the episode progresses, Peter Stasty lets her just fall into hysterics. And there's much more to the character and the actress than that. You've got a potential rape in this episode. And then in Children of the Full Moon, not only have you got a rape, it's a voyeuristic rape. And this, this is still only sort of like 9.15 on a Saturday night whenever it was screened. That's pretty strong meat, really. Children of the Full Moon is another fan favourite, though, isn't it? Obviously, probably because Diana Dawes steals the whole episode. 
I thought it was great fun, actually. I was only disappointed by really the reveal of the Wolfman at the end. I think (laughs) what less is more there, because when he's telling, you know, like, you know, a father needs to provide for his children and all that. He's not a Wolfman there. And all of that is great. And they could have just left it like that. And as a viewer, you know that he is the werewolf. You know, it's so bloody obvious. You don't need to see that shot of him with all that fake fur on his face. That was such a letdown there. But that's another episode where, you know, Mrs. Ardoy has taken this couple in Hmm. and they're both sort of shocked by how refined her lifestyle is. She and her husband grow grapes. Hmm. The children play musical instruments and wear quite posh clothes. And their reaction to the couple before anything nasty happens, well, their reaction to Mrs. Ardoy, I think Sarah describes her as the old bag. I mean, she's wined and dined them. Yeah. And then near the end, the husband talks to the men in the forest as woodsmen, as if we're back in the medieval period. Again, I, I can't help but feel that there is almost a sort of little satirical swipe at middle class people, isn't there somewhere? Yes, you do feel for Celia Gregory because she does get raped, basically, but the leads are pretty bland. It's a typical hammer tale. It's old dark house. It's all misty woods and mm. strange paths. The contrast is it's a civilised old dark house. It's lovely inside. The kids are brought up with music. But what really nails the episode is the wonderful dark humour. This is the series Big Black Comedy. And as Rodney says, it's Mrs. Ardoy, Diana Dawes, who steals it. You know, things like, oh, they do like a little bit of meat. The only other one I really want to quickly mention is Guardian of the Abyss, which I think was great fun. I really enjoyed that one, watching that one again. Okay, there's a little bit of silliness with the knife. I know that that particularly grates you, Smudge. (laughs) But again, it's the baddies getting away with it. It's really great. And I think that um, John Carson's brilliant in it. Some wonderful little nods back to Old Hammer, you know, with the sort Mm -hmm. of a whole occult thing and... It's a reasonable episode. It's got a brilliant top and tail with two different ceremonies. It gets a bit flabby in the middle. But again, John Carson, that little scene with the bread, wine and salt, that is such a nod back to The Devil Rides Out when Charles Gray visits the house. But I also think they make great use of the house and grounds in it. Lovely sequences where, you know, she's being chased across what is that sort of massive expanse of a front lawn. And when just before he picks her up, she runs through the hayfield and you can see the house in the background that she's still on the estate. Yeah, the house in the background is almost more threatening than when it's close up, if that makes sense, because it's almost like, well, she's almost escaped, but actually we can but, still see. And the, another good touch in this is the historical context of the scrying glass, because they've got it right. They've done the job, the research, and even the Alistair Crowley stuff is correct. I think it's got the worst piece of dialogue in the whole series. When Alison Rosalind Lander has escaped and she's got to Michael Roberts, Ray Lonnon's house, and she says, oh, someone just walked over my grave. And he replies, I'll put the fire on for you. I suppose we should come on to the highly contentious issue of my word here, clunkers. The clunkers of this series, the three for me that I find just don't work or are a pain to watch. Growing Pains, Mark of Satan 
and rude awakening. Growing pains, I'm not going to spend too long on the clunkers, I don't think, but I've no sympathy for the couple. They seem like they couldn't care less about their child, although the mother does seem to be a little bit maternal in some ways, I suppose, but they seem to be obsessed with money and obsessed with their jobs. I didn't think it was very well scripted. The direction I found flat. The boy I find really annoying. None of it worked for me. I think it only works on one level, and that is it is a bit of a social satire. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you've already said, here are a couple, very respectable, important jobs. They don't actually care about their children. When her son dies, she goes to like pick up a replacement, as it were. And that is almost what it is. Um, she provides him with this sort of new rabbit. She wants a sanitized one. And basically she wants a sanitized child who will look after himself, take the dog out for a walk and, and not cause him any problems at all. It does ask interesting questions about, as a society, do we care about children who perhaps are being emotionally abused, but they're from rich families. So the families mm -hmm. get away with it, don't they? I like your phrase about sort of picking up the child, the replacement child. I mean, you could all, almost hear the tagline. This is not just an adoptee. This is an M&S adoptee. And if she could get one off the shelf, yes. she would. Yeah. And, and in fact, I mean, when she picks him up, she's told he's come from good stock, good, mm. solid professional people. Yes. Yeah. Then he's introduced. And I think the matron says he's like a little old man, because that's mm. what happens when you're in those institutions. It's terrible. I mean, I can't. I mean, you said she, she seems a bit maternal somewhere, but I can't understand why she's redeemed at all. I think both of them should have been dealt with. It is unquestionably the worst episode. Oh, no, well, I think it's above the other two, I'm afraid. Because it does have that social satire, whereas I, I don't know what the other two have got at all. The thing is, Rude Awaken and Marcus Satan, they're both loop episodes, and I don't like loop episodes generally i think it's a it's a cop-out and i know that you might argue well actually they're not loops marcus satan is i would say it mm -hmm. really is an absolute stinker of an episode mm -hmm. it's an interesting premise don't get me wrong mm -hmm. that the sort of psychological madness of this guy but nothing is explained why is he obsessed with number nine this is the common thing between these two episodes rude awakening and uh, marcus Aiden. there's no anchor we come into the middle of the madness to me marcus satan isn't an entertainment it's just a case study of a paranoid schizophrenic it's a messy episode it's not very well directed you wouldn't believe it was directed by the same person who directed witching time i mean i'm sorry but the two guys in that morgue if I was the guy who was have that paranoid schizophrenia, I would have punched them within I mean, minutes. This is what they do. They build on him because he is so open to suggestion and they basically feed it to him. But I mean, to give McKenna his, his due, it's a good performance. It's just not an entertainment. Well, I mean, they do have quite a lot in common, don't they? They've even got this idea that there's an operation going on that links the two episodes. I just feel it should have been the script writers who've been operated on. This thing about Marcus Satan being a loop episode, I've read that online as well, but it's not. It's a different person. I appreciate that it's different, but it, it, it doesn't seem to want to go anywhere. Yeah. And the whole thing about eat the baby and all of that, that's just ridiculous. I do think, you know, with Rude Awakening as well, that, like I said, sort of towards the beginning of the podcast, I do think we have to find the characters at least interesting, if not characters that we want to invest our time with. 
-hmm. And again, with Denham Elliott, considering the one of the first things we see him do is pouring like some uncouth randy old estate agent over his secretary. Uh -huh. Are we ever going to want to invest any time in him? It's a sorry episode, really, because he's just an impotent fantasist, isn't he? And again, it's like the mark of Satan. I mean, I, I've got time for rude awakening. Again, there's no anchor. We, we just come straight into his dream world and we, we don't know where we are. We've got no point of reference. Like Jazz has said before, talking about this episode, we don't know what's driving him to kill his wife. I just think he's just an immature and impotent fantasist. In defence of Denham Elliott, he does what the script asks him to do. He's got that sense of disorientation mounting. And another thing, as we progress, he becomes more and more conscious of the dream. And this could have been our escape point, really, I suppose, as the viewer. But then we get to the end and we've got a, a sort of dual purpose ending. You can either believe that reality has finally caught up with him or you can believe the whole thing has started up all over again. Within it, there are some nice little touches. There's a couple of lovely, lovely shots. I mean, there's that bit where he's been pushed into the morgue and the door opens and from his viewpoint, he's looking at them, looking in on him. That's a wonderful yeah. shot. That's one aspect to it that I like. It's because embedded in the story, embedded in the multiple nightmares that you've got, you've got at least six nightmares here. You've got the waking nightmare. You're awake on an operating table. And then another brilliant point and a brilliant little performance is Eleanor Summersfield embedding a ghost story. Multi-layers it works, but it all comes down to where was it going and is, is the ending satisfactory? It depends on you as the viewer, I suppose. Shelley's wife and Lolly, they both say to him at one point, I haven't the faintest idea what you're on about. And that's mm. what I felt like as, as a viewer. It's got some interesting imagery. I quite like the three visits. The first time the house is run down, second mm -hmm. time it's not there at all. And then it's pristine and the dumb waiter and the sealed phone box. I, mm. I get the fact that it's got some good images, but mm. I think you need more than good images to make a good story. I thought that Denham Elliott's performance was good. He acted what he was given to act, but I just found the script to be really... There were some interesting touches, but I thought it was a, a lazy ending because at no point did I understand why he would want to kill his wife. And it just didn't make any sense. I wanted it to make some sort of sense to me. But again, we've got that ridiculous line. He goes to the specialist. He's told he's got a tumour on the brain. And his reaction is, oh, is it serious then? This is the, one of the points where he's developing consciousness of the dreams. He's been so sort of embedded into those dreams. He's suddenly starting to think along the line of, I'm not awake. I've not woken up properly. It's just this cyclical nightmare. The ending, in fact, is him going, oh, ho, you know, this is a dream. I didn't kill my wife. And that is where, as a viewer, we should have had the payoff. You, you can't decide whether it's a loop or not for yourself. I think it's a loop. We are going to talk about locations and Hampton House itself, because what is great about this series is that whole little bit of Metroland suburbs of London. You see these and they're so well done and so well shot. It is really like going back in time. It's a little time capsule to what those places were like, quaint little antique shops that Maybe they are still there. Maybe they're not. We don't know. I think, Rodney, you said that you felt that only the house that bled to death wasn't really in the same sort of feel as 
say the villages that are used in lots of the other episodes and i can see your point there because it's a sort of rundown it looks like a 30s built house whereas lots of the other places seem to be a more grandiose don't they well, i mean metro land is moneyed I mean, obviously, Charlie Boy, they do actually specify it's Barnes, which obviously mm. is not Metroland. Metroland is that sort of Buckinghamshire, sort of metropolitan line, et cetera, which yeah. is very moneyed. But yeah. no, I just felt House That Bled to Death, it is sort of quite a banal, as you say, 1930s. It's not quite the same sort of location as the others, is it? But I don't think it would have worked if it was in a quaint little village. No, it, it works perfectly because of where they set it. Hamden House itself, wow, what a location. And it is used so well by this production team. I'm going to turn into Monty Berman now because it was a masterstroke because they were on a pretty tight turnaround. They were on 12 days, roughly, per episode, and they were doing episodes back-to-back. They had A crews and B crews. It's, it's an odd assortment of single episodes and doubled-up episodes. With virtually everything being in Hampton House, it allowed them to hit those tight turnarounds and get the 13 episodes done in 16 weeks because they, they were just barely moving half the time. I mean, mm. yes, they would have had second unit out on location in House of Blood Death or main unit. But for the most part, they were able to just wheel from one room to the other, instant setup, nice, quick, time-saving, cost-cutting. It's quite a Monty Berman point, isn't it? He'd have loved being there to make his series, you know? <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing is, Royce Gage said he wanted to recreate the Brave feel. That turnaround you mentioned is incredibly tight. When you think about, we usually talk about ITC shows making one episode in 10 days, so, so over a fortnight. But to make 13 episodes... 10 of which I would, would argue are very good, in 16 weeks is, is an amazing feat. You've got to say, for the whole of this series, there are some, maybe they're not specifically constructed sets, but there are some beautifully dressed rooms throughout the whole thing. Interestingly, I mean, I think unlike with the Baron, we were moaning about the overuse of the Elstree backlot. Here, the reuse of inside locations, I have no problem with. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that scene with, you know, Mr. Willis, James Cosmo, where he's humiliating people, that room with the sort of balcony above it is used in quite a lot of the episodes, isn't it? The wooden panelled room. But I didn't find myself going, oh, not that again. I sent you that video of Hampton House, the principal location. The expanse of sight was absolutely brilliant and they used it so very, very well. If you look at that, there's about three different entrances, I mean, main entrances to that complex. And they used all of those so well in the way that it was an entrance to a house farm. But then it was also a different entrance was the entrance to the house in Children of the Full Moon, for example. So they did use that house superbly, I think. funny though because lots of the stories with the exception of probably house that bled to death involve people who are, are quite well moneyed where rodney talked about class he's quite right most of the people in this are quite middle class aren't they you would beg the question as to how a woodsman rodney runs such a grand house as he does in the middle of the woods in the children of the full moon he of... sells his pinot noir <laughs> in those metroland villages yeah, and if they're full of antique shops, you know one thing, it means there's people with money. The Pinot Noir trodden by the children, that's why he's, that's why he's got this big horde of children, he's using them to crush the grapes. There is a class division, there is, there is a sort of social commentary thread running through these, I suppose. It's one of the things I liked about 13th Reunion was the fact that this character, 
she's the sort of heroine of the piece. She mm -hmm. questions things. Even at the beginning, she's questioning, why do we have this women's page? There isn't mm -hmm. a men's page. I don't want to be reporting on garden parties and things. I like the fact that there is a certain social awareness to the show. Was that something that might have been almost in a Hammer House of Horror Bible? Or was that just something individual writers were picking up on at the time? Good question. Uh, but I mean, again, the opposite side of the spectrum when 13th Reunion, the Richard Pearson character, Chesterton, you know, he's been brought up in the right way, inverted commas, and, and that sort of, I wouldn't say it's a veneer of charm. I think it comes to him naturally to accept the woman when she bursts in and invites her to dinner and whatever. And that's, that's a different type of social status. In the background of it, yes, you know that there's potentially nefariousness afoot, but that the wonderful way everything is so matter of fact and how he's sort of very genteel. That to me is the episode that probably has the best sort of black humour in it. I mean, mm -hmm. she realises finally, just as the dinner gong rings, mm -hmm. are you hungry? And then I think he says, oh, she doesn't want to stay. That's her funeral. That works rather well. You've got the build up to that when they're talking about he should find himself another wife and he said finding a woman match my taste. This is a series that has quite strong roles for women. That's one thing I noticed again, rewatching it. There aren't that many sort of typical hysterically scared women in this. I think that the women in this are given quite a lot of meaty roles and lots of them play the parts really well. And I thought that was really refreshing, actually. And I don't know if that's a case of like 70s women's lib or whatever, but I thought that was a brave move by the production team. If it was conscious, if it wasn't conscious, even better. And the sort of the other side of that for men to play non-macho parts. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of Warren Clark's part, for example. Um, he's very much a sort of someone who's in, in tune with his emotions. And we mentioned earlier Anthony Valentine's character. Mm. who is not your typical sort of, um, sort of racist, sexist policeman, etc. I think it's mm -hmm. rather nice that in terms of gender on both sides, we get some sort of liberated characters. I mean, Anthony Valentine did confound your expectations, because like I said, at the start, he comes on as a, a mockney sort of copper, and you're thinking this is going to be Sweeney, and then within the first few beats of the programme, he's talking about something quite daring for then, again, coming back to how things change, he's talking about the potential for the, the first murder being a gay slaying. 
and it was just done in a matter-of-fact way. It was, wasn't sort of flags and banners and whatever. It was just part of the dialogue. He delivered it straight. And the episode develops to encompass a gay character or potentially a gay character in Tadek. And it's just done straight down the line. It, it's pretty liberal, really. Yeah, and we mentioned the husband in witching time being mm -hmm. vulnerable at his wit's end, basically. And his wife saves the day, essentially. I mean, the only one that's sort of disappointing in terms of women's roles, I would say, is Visitor from the Grave. Because, like I said earlier, she starts the episode so strongly and you can really feel the trauma of the potential rape. They do just let her sort of fall back on being an hysteric. Okay, what about the reaction to this series? I mean, we've talked about it as, you know, we were teenagers watching it and certain episodes stuck in our mind. Viewing figures were good. Got 13 million regularly every week. It was screened in America as double bills. So like they paired up two episodes together and showed them back to back as a series. This was quite well received, wasn't it? It is very strongly remembered and it, and it will be. People will have varying opinions on varying episodes and I'm, I'm hoping people will sort of come back to us and say, oh yeah, this is this is why I like Rude Awakening, this is why I like Visitor from Beyond the Grave or whatever. Like I said, it was at that cusp of where the hammers were starting to be seen regularly on television. I don't know what the reaction to it was in America, to be honest. I can't seem to find much research on the show at all. I would love to know what they thought of it in America because it is very British. And I wonder how that sat with them in terms of, you know, they, they have their ideas of, say, what Britishness was. This is essentially meeting that image, isn't it? Because you're setting these horrors in the home counties and, and that's mm. what they all think we are. They all think we are dear stalker hat wearers who drive Mercedes and goodness knows what we, we drink Pinot Noir and what have you. But it's interesting that unlike Thriller, where there are a lot of American and Canadian actors used, there isn't a huge amount here. I mean, we've got obviously the heroine in Visitor from the Grave, but I think she was based in the UK anyway, wasn't she? We haven't really got much of that sort of mid-Atlantic, no. which you've got in no. Thriller. So it's almost like, here's a series, it's very British. See what that's, you that's think a, of it. That's a good point. I haven't really thought of it in those terms. But yes, you haven't got your regular sort of ITC parachuted in guest star for foreign sales, which again says to me that Lou Gray's involvement was purely monetary. And yeah. perhaps he wasn't looking for the American sales. This just came as part of the bundle to make the movies. I'd love to know more on that. It's one of these shows, Hammer House of Horror, where I don't think there's been that much written about it as such. You know, it's always one of these shows that seems to be a little overlooked. I know in very recent times, in the last year or two, it's had a little bit of a renaissance where I think there's been of a, a radio special on it. Is that the nature of anthology series? I mean, there isn't a huge amount written about Thriller or, as I say, outside the something like Tales of the Unexpected. Is it because we haven't got a magnetic hero or heroine each week? Is yeah. that part of it? In terms of DVD releases, it was released in America. It was released in Australia as well. So I'm assuming mm -hmm. that, you know, they wouldn't release it on DVD without there being a market there for it had already been on TV. But when we talk about, say, The Saint or The Baron and we talk about international sales, we're talking about them being basically sold to every country virtually in the world, apart from, say, mm -hmm. Russia and Albania. I have no idea in terms of did Hammer House of Horror ever get screened, for example, say in Spain or mm. in France or Italy or Germany, the sort of strongholds where all these previous ITC shows were on all the time. 
yeah. yeah, it's an um, interesting conundrum, that one. I think the general feeling is that it's, it's a nice coda, proper hammer. Whereas when we come to the subsequent series, Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense, it's a very, very different beast indeed. That was planned to be Hammer House of Horror series two, though, wasn't it? It was. We've got Roy Skeggs on record saying that they'd made this 13 and they were going to do another series in the following year. We should IT's... probably explain why that didn't happen, because obviously um, ITC's funding kind of dried up, really, with the film Race the Titanic. ITC lost 30 odd million on two films just around this time. In the summer of the preparation of Hammer House of Horror, ITC released You Can't Stop the Music, the Village People movie. Yeah. They thought it was a dead cert. It was just a dead duck. And as we all know, famously, raised the Titanic, which Lou Grade mm. would say it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic. And that was it, the, the, the fortunes of war. They'd gone too deep into film distribution. There was no way they were coming back. So in 1981, Skeggs made a deal with Fox to produce the Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense. And because it was a primary network, they wanted everything toned down. They wanted less of the horror, less of the blood. But there's yeah. a certain irony that Hammer comes to ITC because of financial problems. And in the end, ITC is in almost as bad a situation that's probably why I would say this is not the last, but it is probably the last, if you know what I mean, of the great ITC series that started all the way back in the 50s. The 80s was around the corner and ITC was basically no more as the ITC we know and love. I think that overall then, that I would argue in summing up that Hammer House of Horror is a great ITC series. I think there are 10 great episodes to watch. Some are a little bit daft in places, but that's all right. There are, for me, three or four absolute crackers. There's one in particular that is just still, for me, head and shoulders, and I'm going to be watching it again and again and again, I can tell you that. And I think it's enjoyable, and it's, it's not, like, super scary in the way that, say, alien is where less is more and you don't really quite know what's going on but it's definitely got a few jumpy moments i think is a series that is definitely worth a rewatch. i think it's good because it, it did bring something different to the small screen at the time it did bring us some strong material in terms of the series as a whole it's only 13 episodes but it's got a, a variety for people who like to get different things out of horror it's got one or two nice poetic justice endings in it. It's a more than reasonable coda to hammer from Hammer in its heyday. It, it's probably better than petering out on a film like The Lady Vanishes. It did give both Hammer and ITC one last hurrah. I thoroughly enjoyed re-watching it. It comes over, first of all, for me, as being well made. There are times with the thriller series where I feel I'm almost watching quite cheaply made, quite atmospheric stuff, but it doesn't seem to have that ITC quality at times thriller. I think this really does feel as if money's been spent on it. There's enough jump scares. Uh, I love the Metroland backdrop, and I think the Hamden House is inspired as a location and setting. And as I've said a few times during the podcast, I do enjoy that sort of social satire that I think sort of runs throughout it as well. So I agree. I think 10 of the 13 episodes well worth reviewing. 
Well, that's wonderful. Thanks ever so much for joining us again, guys, on our socially distanced ITC Entertain the World podcast. We look forward to uh, reading all your comments about defending Rude Awakening. We'll be back in the near future. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me too. You have been listening to ITC Entertain the World podcast, Hammer House of Horror, with Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall, and Al Smudge. It was a bitter and twisted production for the morning after. <laughs> <laughs>